Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 6th of July, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Corn News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to have David Scott with us. David bringing us, of course, northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, we'll get uh, straight on with this. Uh, this is The Telegraph. A lot of the mainstream media covering this today. Coronavirus could lead to 35,000 extra cancer deaths, double the previous estimates. Now, the BBC was covering this on the uh, Today programme this morning, and they were interviewing the father of a lady who had passed away as a result of having her cancer treatments uh, stopped during the uh, coronavirus, uh, the, the height of the coronavirus so-called pandemic. Um, and uh, I have to say, Brian, that the, the, the thrust of it was, they had a short interview, interview with her because they spoke to her before she passed away. Uh, and I just thought the, the language that she used was, was very interesting because she said um, that the cancer treatment had been stopped as a, as a, by this coronavirus. Of course, the cancer treatment wasn't stopped by the coronavirus. I understand why she might have that, hold that view. But we, I think it's really important that we make this point. The, the cancer treatment wasn't stopped by the coronavirus. The cancer treatment was stopped as a result of the government response to the coronavirus. Yeah. And, uh, and Mike, it's fascinating you should start off with that because in a couple of minutes we're going to be looking at some BBC material with that very spin in it. Uh, absolutely. So so look, uh, this was the news from last Wednesday's programme. If you remember that uh, uh, excess mortality in the UK has fallen below the five-year average for the first time since week 13, which was when the lockdown was uh, put in place. Um, the implication here and maybe, David, I can invite you onto the programme here and say welcome. Uh, but the implication of, uh, here is that uh, we're going to see that creep up above the average again uh, as the year progresses, as more and more people are affected by what is a policy decision. Yes, I mean, I, and this is where we need more data that, that, that goes into this in final detail, because we've suspended a huge amount of medical attention. And this is going to show in, in, in really stark terms, where the medical attention that was that was cancelled, that was stopped, was vital, where it was harmful, where it was hugely beneficial, um, and and we need to get into the detail of that so that the, the messages aren't masked. Uh, absolutely. Now it's interesting that you end with that phrase that so that the messages aren't masked. Uh, we're going to come straight on to uh, Peter Hitchens uh, today, and I really recommend people what, uh, read this article in full. Because uh, really, David, at this point, Hitchens is the only person in the mainstream media that's giving any sort of honest narrative uh, as to what's going on. So uh, he's called this, uh, we've all turned from normal humans into muzzled masochists. Um, and uh, he's saying, when this madness began, I behaved as if a new and fan fanatical religion was spreading among us. Uh, be polite and tolerant, I thought. It may be crazy and damaging, but in time it will go away. Now it is clear that a new faith based on fear of the invisible and quite, and quite immune to reason has all but taken over the country. And it turns out to be one of those faiths that doesn't have much tolerance for those who don't share it. Uh, and uh, he went on to say, uh, my guess is about 85% of the population now worship it and will continue to do so. 
The rest of us are, as each day goes by, a, a persecuted minority forced to go along with, the be with beliefs we do not hold. Uh, he said, its evangelists will not leave you and me alone, but constantly seek to force us to join. Uh, this is why I make such a fuss about the demand to make us all wear muzzles. It's not about health. There's simply not enough evidence to compel us to do so. It's an attempt to force submission on COVID unbelievers. Scotland's tin pot despot, Nicola Sturgeon, and we're coming on to her in a second, uh, now demands that muzzles are worn in shops as well as on public transport north of the border. In Texas, of all states, the governor seeks to make muzzles compulsory in all public places. Uh, the tiny circulation Guardian newspaper, which just so happens to be the house journal of the BBC, absurdly compares muzzles to seatbelts. And this is the article, if you want to go and read it, The Guardian View in Protecting the Public cover your face. This is a Guardian editorial. And we're getting back to Hitchens and he says uh, uh, they, they've absurdly uh, compare muzzles to seatbelts uh, and demands that it's in its main editorial, uh, in this main ed editorial, the truth is there, uh, is still not one eighth of an ounce of evidence uh, that cra uh, crashing the economy and keeping us all at home saved a single life. Let us examine the case for the punitive closure of Leicester. And he goes on to discuss that a little bit more. Uh, and then he follows uh, with this. Uh, he's saying the obsession with telling us how to look uh, and turning us from normal humans into submissive, mouthless flock animals, uh, all decked out in a compulsory uniform, is, in my view, part of an unprecedented assault on our personal liberty in general. Uh, and then he mentions uh, a letter that he's received from a member of the public. So let's uh, have a look at what she said to him. Uh, I run a small coffee shop and when the state decreed I reopened for takeaway, I was allowed also by the local council to use a small area outside my premises for people to sit down and drink their takeaways. Occasionally when the weather had been bad or someone with an infirmity hasn't been able to take their drink away, I've let them sit inside. So this is a letter to Peter Hitchens. It goes on to say, uh, this morning I was visited by the police and warned. Uh, I was informed that two complaints had been made against me for serving drinks inside the premises, all for making someone a cup of tea and being human enough to let them have it inside. Uh, and she goes on to say that, of course, uh, at the point that she had been burgled a year before, uh, the police weren't too concerned or willing to get involved in helping at that point. But, uh, you know, reports from the public are acted on straight away. Um, so, uh, and then he, he finishes the article by making the point that uh, the political cleansing of our schools and universities c continues ferociously and that basically they have, uh, uh, you know, become mouthpieces for, for this policy. I thought it was uh, a hugely important uh, article, David. I'm just interested in uh, what you think from what you've heard there. I, I think that's fantastic. I mean, it, it, it raises so many important issues. Um, I, I love the, the tin pot despot reference to Nicola Sturgeon. We might come to that in extra time. I've been collecting nicknames, but I didn't have that one. Uh, the idea that we're in a situation where it's, it's, it's evangelical, it's, it's, a, it's a religious type fervor we're facing, and we're seeing that most of the population has given themselves over to this and are informing on those who won't to the police is, is very key because that brings in with it echoes of East Germany, echoes of the Stasi, echoes of a fundamental loss of liberty when the society no longer values it and, and anyone who stands out from that norm is, is therefore a target. These are very important points that Hitchens makes here. Um, and likewise, the schools and universities pushing this hard. 
Uh, I had a, a story from Scotland today where someone was trying to get on a train. They had a mask in their pocket because you have to wear a mask on a train. Uh, they were on the platform and they got into an argument with a police officer. There was only one person on the platform apart from the police and they were forcing the idea that you must put the mask on because you're on railway property. Completely irrational, utterly irrational, but that's how people are responding with this strange, excessive, quasi-religious fervour. Well, just add to that, David, you've used the word religious. Um, people are pointing out that actually the uh, focus has been on death. So we've really got a, a death cult mm. as opposed to just a religion at work. Uh, but David, let's come on. Scotland uh, and the uh, tin pot, death pot or whatever she was called there. Uh, and Devi uh, Sridhar, who of course we've mentioned a couple of times uh, in recent programmes, uh, who appears to be the, the friend of uh, the Clintons, who's providing Nicola Sturgeon with all her uh, policy in this area. Yes, Debbie is the one that Nicola um, follows. She won't do anything without Debbie say so. Uh, and Debbie's writing books about who, who runs the world with, um, with Chelsea Clinton. So it's a very interesting uh, little dynamic there. But Debbie's got herself in a little bit more hot water because she keeps tweeting. And uh, this time she said, to Americans wondering what's going on, here's my naive take. Well, she used the right word there. Scotland is now doing well in its response to COVID-19, which seems to anger anti-Scottish pro-UK people, brackets unionists in inverted commas, who are now turning their attacks on me because I serve with the scientific advisory group to the Scottish government. Now, there are many things about this that are wrong. Um, the reason that, the, that, that people are attacking you, Debbie, is they don't think your advice is up to much and they don't agree with what you're saying and it's nothing to do with you. It's not all about you. It's what you're doing to the people. Um, now, she had to backtrack from this. She had to, she had to delete her tweet and then put out an explanation. She had a deleted tweet describing unionists as anti-Scottish was inaccurate. Well, thank you very much. I misspoke. Well, she mistweeted and meant to say anti-Scottish independence trying to make the distinction for my international followers who don't understand what's happening today. Apologies for any offence caused. So she's just told the majority of Scots, because remember the majority of Scots voted to stay in the UK, that they're anti-Scottish. Uh, but that's OK because she misspoke and there won't be any problem with that because she'll still work for Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, and there's nothing to see here much. So um, Debbie's become very political. And uh, this is a danger if uh, you put some, someone scientific into a problem which is in, at heart not scientific and at heart very political, and they start to make comments when they really don't know what they're doing. Now, on the subject of not knowing what you're doing, uh, we come to, yes, face coverings in Scotland. So from the 10th of July, um, all shops, I don't know how they're going to police this. This is going to be very interesting. If you want to enter any shop, in Scotland from the 10th of July, you must wear a mask or face a £60 fine. Um, now, I, it's not clear if is, are there medical exemptions to this. What if you object strenuously on philosophical grounds to wearing a mask? Are you still fined because of your philosophical belief? It's not clear. Uh, what is clear is what some Scots think of this policy, because here's what Twitter said. Um, absolutely. Uh, and actually, this is this is uh, one example of what Twitter has said with a, a very well photoshopped shopped, uh, uh, 
face of Hitler on uh, on top of uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, but I've seen many other attempts at this uh, with other variants. So uh, this clearly did the rounds quite a lot, David. Yeah, so this is this is the mask that Nicola was wearing, which was a, a virtue signalling tartan mask in favour of homeless people. I think it was. Uh, it's, it's been photoshopped, and it's the face of Hitler on the on the mask instead. Uh, and and this makes a very important point because what is this? This is totalitarianism. This is saying to people that the minutiae of your life is now dictated by the state, and you will comply or the state officials in the form of Police Scotland will hassle you on railway stations and fine you £60, even though they've no right to do any such thing. And it's all been based on the say-so of the dear leader, right? because she stood up there and she said, this is a new policy. And it's come at a point when the virus is gone. There is no excess death. Why are we doing this? Pavlov's dogs. It's Pavlov. The public are being trained to behave as the totalitarian state wants. It's an applied psychological attack on the Scottish population. Uh, absolutely. We'll have a little quote on that later on. Uh, now, I wanted to highlight this. This is uh, the Linda Nobel Laureate meetings website, uh, and they held a debate, uh, as you can see, entitled Corona, the role of science in times of crisis. Uh, a number of participants in this uh, from various universities, um, and uh, they are they discussed the scientific aspects such as virus biology, immunity, antibodies, antiviral drugs, mathematical models for virus spread, and so on. Um, but uh, uh, we had uh, a, a video clip um, from Professor uh, Michael Lovett, um, and I think uh, you need to listen to this, and we'll just have a quick uh, chat about it afterwards. The scientists are more panicked and scared of reality than anybody else. The uh, august organizations like Linda, the Royal Society, the National Academy of Science have been totally silent. As a group, scientists have failed the younger generation. There should have been a committee formed either by the Nobel Foundation, by Linda, by the Royal Society, the National Academy at the, in the middle of February when this was coming down the road and we should have discussed this. Instead, we let economics and politics dedicate the science. And for me, the worst opposition I got was from very, very prominent scientists who were so scared that the non-scientists would break quarantine and infect them. There was total panic. And the fact is that almost all the science we were hearing, for example, from organizations like the World Health Organization was wrong. Reports were released openly shared by email, and all I got back was abuse. And you've got to see that everything I said in that first six weeks was actually true. And for political reasons, we as scientists let our views be corrupted. I think that was a fairly fair assessment of what has been going on, David, over the, over the last period. Uh, he has obviously been on the receiving end of some pretty vitriolic abuse. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's quite similar, isn't it, to, to the type of uh, problem that many scientists in the climate change area have been facing as well, because what we have here is, as you've already mentioned this morning, is an absolutely politicized situation and, and contrary, I mean, quite the opposite to, be, to the claims from, uh, from great leaders around the world that they were being led by the science. In fact, they were being led by politicized science and, and, and agendas more than anything else. 
Absolutely, yes. That was spectacular. That was that was vital listening. Um, the science has been corrupted, and science as a whole has been corrupted. And it's not just that it's been politicised, although that's certainly true. It, it's also abandoned ideas such as truth as, a, as an existential reality. It's abandoned reality. It's 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 gone into a whole series of hyper specialisations, and that means it's abandoned any broad coherence. So I think there's a reason they couldn't get together and have, an, have a sensible talk, because there is no longer any basis for that sensible conversation. There's no longer any basis in things like a shared view of reality and a shared view of truth. There's something very, very broken with science, and it has led and been complicit in leading the entire society into this disaster. And, and it's, it's all the more creditworthy that, that a, a fair number of individual scientists despite all of the, um, the, the the backlash they've suffered, have actually stood against this and spoken truthfully. Uh, indeed, and in fact, they're, they're very quickly learning how to use the internet uh, in order to do that, which is something that perhaps you know scientists in the past haven't been necessarily the best at in, in communicating their ideas. They're learning to, to communicate very, very quickly, and they, they've been doing quite a good job, some of them. Uh, but. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's come to this then, because of course part of the reason that the science is so politicised is because of the the lack of the the work being done by, or at least the, there's been no proper work done by the mainstream press. And in order to try to justify their position, though, the Press Gazette here has been running a campaign about the so-called infodemic. They're very concerned about the alternative narratives, the non-mainstream narratives. Uh, that are appearing on uh, social media and so on. I'm not saying that there is no fake news in social media. Of course there is. There are people post stuff on social media that's misunderstood. Uh, it gets shared. The question is, what is the scale of the problem? Uh, actually, the reason that the Press Gazette, Gazette and the likes of, of them are so outraged about it is because it's contrary to the press's narrative and the press is suffering commercially from the fact that people aren't buying their product. So anyway, the headline here in the Press Gazette is Infodemic Inf Investigation. Facebook is the biggest source of false claims about coronavirus. And I have a real problem with this headline because in that, one, in that you know, half dozen words or dozen words is, is the lie that Facebook is a source. Facebook is not a source of anything. Facebook is a platform on which people post. Uh, and so the sources are external to Facebook it's just that they are shared on Facebook. Uh, so that perhaps gives us a clue that there's an agenda there already. Anyway, they're talking about uh, Facebook being the biggest source of false claims. Where are they getting this from? It's from this organization, Pointer. Uh, and this is uh, a database that they're holding of all the fact-checking articles from around the world. Uh, Fighting the infodemic is what it's called, the hashtag Coronavirus Facts Alliance. Um, now, Pointer, uh, says that uh, uh, that we can't have a democracy as we know it without a free press, and that's why Pointer is so important. Uh, they also say that uh, Pointer is a thought leader, um, so that's what they're all about. Um, and uh, Pointer fosters public trust in Germany. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah, a bit of a Freudian sorry. slip there. <laughs> Pointer fosters public trust in journalism. Uh, and uh, so there you go. Anyway, getting back to this, uh, this Press Gazette uh, article, which is based on the, the Pointer database, uh, here's uh, what they show. Most false coronavirus claims originate on social media, fair enough. And they're showing that Facebook is the biggest uh, place that you can find 
uh, claims originated uh, claims about coronavirus, uh, followed by Twitter, followed by WhatsApp, uh, and then other social media, then other media, and then YouTube, then various websites, and then news. They don't specify what that means, uh, and then Instagram, and finally the last <laughs> one on the list is Donald Trump. I think that's fantastic. So anyway, uh, getting back to the actual pointer database itself, I just wanted to show uh, the members of this uh, uh, hashtag Coronavirus Facts Alliance. Um, so here we are, uh, AFP, everybody from AFP to Corrective. It, it's quite a, quite a body of organizations, um, as you can see. Uh, and uh, so the question then is, uh, who's behind this lot? Uh, well, let's have a look. It is, in fact, the uh, Shuttleworth Foundation, they are uh, financing this and they say that they are a small social investor that provides funding to dynamic leaders who are at the forefront of social change. So, David, uh, I'm not sure what you make of that. So let me see now. So we've got a tax exempt foundation uh, funding change agents uh, to get a lot of corporate support and sponsorship for telling a free press that they need a thought leader. Did, did I catch that right? I think that's more or less sums it up, yeah. Okay, right. I, I know exactly what to think of them in that case. Yeah. So, sorry, what, what were you going to say? There's a small problem on this particular slide that's about to come up. Oh, which is, is it? Yeah, which is a shame. That's an additional image. That's uh, my, my mistake. Let's see whether we can rectify this before it goes on screen. Uh, otherwise, we're missing the main BBC. Well, we'll keep talking uh, and I'll, I'll do it. Um, well, what you're experiencing live, of course, you would just delete that one. Right, got okay. Marker on there. Okay. What you're seeing live, you would never experience on the BBC because <laughs> with £4.3 billion, they would be incapable of doing that. Uh, well, well that, that, that's absolutely true. Uh, that's absolutely true. Right, okay, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> let's have a look at the BBC. And uh, this is the headline, Coronavirus Lockdown, Eight Ways. The lockdown has changed the UK. I'm just going to read that again. Coronavirus lockdown, eight ways the lockdown has changed the UK. And of course, as we get into this, we find that the BBC is actually in a great game of spinning here. I haven't pulled out the text. I've just pulled out the images, which I thought people might like to see. Um, so they are analysing and have been analysing everything, how movement has changed. Um, and a lot of it because people might people have been visiting parks and the beaches. Shocking. This is just shocking. Should be stamped out. Um, here we are. Percentage change in visits to parks, beaches in the weeks from the 23rd of March uh, and in mid-June compared with before coronavirus. Uh, so that's a good one. Uh, one in four employees have been furloughed. Uh, manufacturing there. Look at that. 29%. So this is... Um, although this is in lockdown, this is really starting to reveal the immense damage that's been uh, carried out on the country. Yes, I mean they're not they're not pointing out there that what that graph what that graphic represents is 9.1 million people. Now yeah. they were very excited to tell us last week that 300,000 people had come off furlough since the lockdown was beginning to be lifted. But 300,000 isn't a very large proportion of 9.1 million. How many of those 9.1 million are going to end up being permanently unemployed? Well, thank you, Mike, because, you know, this is exactly right. You look at what the BBC has pumped out here, the statistics. So they're lying by omission. 
is what's actually going on here. Let's have a look at this one. Children in school in England during lockdown. Well, everything's okay apparently now because children are going back to school, but there's, uh, of course, no comment on the social distancing implications on young children. Uh, then we've got this one. People, well, they wanted cream, cream teas and gardening tools. The gardening tools, that seems to me to be understandable because people wanted to be out doing things in their gardens and uh, they needed the assets to do that. Uh, but this desire for cream teas just seems shocking, absolutely shocking. Um, great analysis on everything people were buying, every single aspect of our lives being pried into and uh, the state hoovering up all of the details as to what you were daring to buy and uh, why. And of course, why do they want this data? They want the data because then they can do the psychological analysis on the real effects on people. A quarter of the people think it will take at least a year to get back to normal, if ever. Uh, well, now we're really getting into it because the population's been so damaged that many people can't see normality anymore. They can't actually think of being back in normality. Well, let's carry on through to this uh, particular one, which I found fascinating. How are people dealing uh, with the lockdown? So what helps you cope? Video, phone calls, films, cooking, gardening, less news, exercising indoors. Um, uh, why have you left home last week? Well, what I noticed was the centre one what's being impacted by COVID-19. But this article is not about COVID-19. This article is about lockdown. Mm. But now the BBC has spun the reader's mind because they wouldn't have picked up on this. But we're not discussing COVID-19. We're discussing how the lockdown has implicated people. And of course, at the end of that little blue, uh, blue section, travel plans, well-being, work, relationships, we've got health. Um, now, what are they talking about? Are they talking about one in 10 people? It's roughly 10%, I think, there uh, are suffering health issues as a result of lockdown. Is that the reality? Or is the BBC just putting people's minds into a drift? They can't understand it. Uh, it seems that's very confusing. Yeah. Deliberately and so, I deliberately guess. Deliberately confusing, Mike, without a question. And then, of course, you will, like this one, we've got... Um, the famous graph. But again, this, this is about lockdown, but what's not on the graph? Uh, well, there's no start to lockdown. There's no acknowledgement of lockdown. All the BBC does is simply says these are the COVID-19 deaths. And isn't it terrible? COVID deaths pushed in your face with no Re, um, reference to lockdown issues at all. Right. But that, that, that graph, I'm going to say, absolutely is a lie. And the reason that I say so is because it is not possible to know from the data um, whether a death attributed to COVID-19 is an excess death or not. So what they've done is they've taken the five-year average and they've just dumped all the, the official COVID-19 death statistics on top of that average in order to imply that those deaths were as a result of COVID-19. But those COVID-19 deaths, the, the ones attributed to COVID-19, could very well appear in the grey block below the average line, yeah. right? So that, that I'm afraid, BBC, again, that is a lie, and uh, we've got to call it out as such. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David, have you got any thoughts? 
Well, I just was going to come back to the, the burning issue of cream teas. Why did they pick cream teas? Here's what I suggest they're doing there. The reason people want cream teas is it represents um, British traditional normality. And that's what that's saying. That's what the people actually want. OK, absolutely. And we'll just end this little section with a quote from Cat Black, actually from Off Guardian, who's saying SARS-CoV-2 is an agent of social control that can be turned on or off at will uh, or fine tuned to respond to any area of unrest. People who would never accept house arrest for anything else will accept it for a virus. I think that's quite an astute comment. Brian, because uh, this, of course, is the key point. Uh, as Lester is showing, um, this is uh, being turned on or off at will, um, and uh, people need to start resisting. Uh, they need to start resisting very forcefully and very quickly because that totalitarian state is installing itself by the day. Yes. Some good news, and we've, we've got to say we're absolutely delighted by the response that we've seen to... Um, a fundraiser for Ian Crane. Now, many people will know, but some won't, that Ian Crane, who's been such a, a fantastic um, uh, activist in pointing out what's happening in the country, tackling fracking, many other things, has been battling with prostate cancer. He's undergone some uh, very serious operations. He's still got some residual um, cancer. Uh, but he needed money in order to be able to choose the treatments that he was now uh, able to travel and have. And over the weekend, after some discussion, uh, it was finally possible to get this fundraiser live. And on the screen, you've got a shot. Now, we suggested that Ian would need at least £10,000 to cover his initial treatment and such things as travel and accommodation and other sundries and extras which all this uh, sort of thing requires uh, but that ten thousand um, pounds has well the, the reaction has been astonishing let's have a look at how the figures have gone up it started out early this morning at four thousand pounds have come in six thousand eight hundred eleven seven thousand seven hundred and seventy six eight thousand eight hundred and forty six and on top of that, there will be £1,000 going into the fund from the UK column. I believe that we're nearly at the 10K. And this has meant that Ian has been able to book into six weeks uh, treatment of his choice. And this means that there can be a major attempt to deal with uh, the cancer which, he, uh, which he's still suffering from. So Ian would like to say thank you all so much for your donations. He really can't take it in, I assure you of that. He's been overwhelmed with the kindness. And as he says here, he's already been able to book in for six weeks treatment that was previously just not possible. So we're going to say that what better advert for the fact that there are so many good people out there that so many of you have stepped forward to give Ian support and of course to kindly donate. Thank you very much. Um, now, David, uh, the headline in the mail, uh, actress behind BLM protests in Whitehall disowns Marxist Black Lives Matter, saying it's a separate group hijacked by far left activists who want to tear down capitalism and abolish the police. Uh, and this uh, seems to be the, another reaction. There have been quite a lot of reactions in the last uh, week or so uh, as people become more aware of what this organization represents. Yes, yes. All, all credit uh, to Miss Aiton here, who is um, speaking the truth about this. She was duped um, into supporting something which she thought was about uh, 
about valuing lives, and it's not that. They have no regard for black lives. Um, and uh, she has called out uh, the BLM movement for, for what it is. It's been co-opted. It's a means of, of, um, of controlling people and directing them towards far-left Marxist viewpoints that they would never normally support and getting massive people out on the street to support that by proxy. Uh, and good on her for saying so, uh, so clearly. Now, the BBC don't say things nearly as clearly, but even they are having to do a little bit of backtracking. I think this is called the trade a reverse ferret. Um, exclusive BBC uh, tells staff not to wear Black Lives Matter badges on air. Oh, well, we were all kneeling down just a wee while ago and supporting this wholeheartedly, but it seems no longer. They're not able to support BLM explicitly uh, as a movement anymore because of the criticism they're getting from the public who are becoming aware and alert to what the BLM UK movement actually is all about. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the BBC are honestly changing policy. That would be too much to hope. What are they really doing? Um, watch this next clip. My first question to the ladies today is, how can white women not be Karens? Educate yourself. Read some books <laughs> so that you are aware of the histories and of of white people and race. I think as well, like, just try not to be defensive about things and particularly try not to be defensive about your whiteness. So I think a lot of the time when white men are ca women are Karens, it's because they are completely unwilling to accept that their whiteness is a privilege and, you know, they want they want instead to be treated um, in a special way because they're women or they or they feel like they don't want to kind of interrogate how what how how their behaving might be racist or what they're doing is problematic. So I think like you have to be you have to be ready to think critically about your identity and your privilege mm -hmm. and yeah and that's really important yeah and don't be so loud like stop stop shouting and stop attacking black voices and, and instead you should be uplifting them mm -hmm. yeah get out of the way basically yeah basically leave <laughs> Uh, David, you're going to have to excuse my ignorance here, but what is a Karen? Well, the, the irony of this, right, this is where the BBC just doesn't get modern culture. A Karen is an entitled and demanding woman. Um, the, those women that were interviewing, they, they were Karens, right? So they, and the BBC completely missed this, which is deeply funny. But do you see the view there, right? You've got to shut up. Uh, because of your skin colour, because this is the BBC being, you know, um, non-racist. You've got to shut up because of your skin colour. You have to leave. Not sure where all the white women are meant to go, but that's, you know, but we want you to leave because of your skin colour. Um, your views are problematic, so you can't say anything. And uh, it's all based on skin tone. So this is what the BBC is pushing, which is the most divisive, uh, corrupting, identity politics that you could possibly imagine. But um, they're having to do it now in ways which in Scotland we would describe as sleek it, meaning underhand, uh, because they're no longer able to put things like BLM badges on their presenters up front because the, the brand is so damaged now 
that uh, they can't quite sustain that. But they're still trying to put the ideas forward. So the ideas need to be challenged as well. Now, um, so are, are we? Are we? Sorry, I was just going to say we're starting to see a bit of positive discrimination creeping in now, are we? Oh, here we go. Well, you can always trust the Labour Party because why? Why do the Conservatives keep winning? I give you the Labour Party. Sir Keir Starmer calls for all BAME shortlists as he proposes major reforms to make Labour quote truly representative. So we're going to start discriminating against people based on the colour of their skin because that will fix racism. Right? I mean, it's just unbelievably stupid. And as a political move, they lost all of the communities, the working class communities they used to represent exactly because of this. And here they are doubling down. Um, it's, it's spectacular in its stupidity. And it, it shows that there's no, there's no soundness anywhere in the ideas coming from what's left of the left, which is a shambles now. Um, now, in contrast, we'll discuss, we'll discuss how much of a contrast. Let's go and see what Donald Trump was saying. Now, this is a speech given in front of Mount Rushmore with the, the, the carved heads of the American presidents uh, on the fourth of on or about the fourth of July. Uh, so an extremely patriotic speech about America, uh, as you would expect. But a couple of areas he went into I didn't expect. One was the culture war. Let's see what he has to say about that. In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. Now, that was spot on. It's very interesting. I asked um, Twitter, my, uh, the people who interact and follow me on Twitter, whether they thought Boris Johnson would have called out the culture war in a similar way. And, and the universal response was, no, he doesn't have the guts. Um, now, there's many other things that Mr. Trump said in that, that speech that I was much less happy with. But I thought as a, as a quick summary of what the culture war is, and how it's currently manifesting itself, that was spot on. Now, he, he, he went on um, to, in some ways, really get to the heart of it, because this is against the background of BLM, against the background of now black militias, are extremely well-equipped and clearly well-funded black militias are starting to crop up in American streets. We've got no-go zones and, and autonomous zones and all of, all of this happening in America. So against that background I and mean, all the BLM process, uh, protests, um, he got very much to the heart of, of the matter with the following clip. We stand tall, we stand proud, and we only kneel to Almighty God. Now, that, A, you cannot imagine any British politician saying that now, not none. Um, and and he, is, he is getting to the core of the issue, which is where your heart lies. Who do you serve? 
ultimately, I think it comes down to it's a choice of, of, of Christ or Satan. But he's talking about who you serve, who you believe represents truth and who you serve. Now, I would say that I think that I see in America the same problems that Britain had a couple of generations earlier, that in the might or with the might, the national might comes arrogance. And he's standing there before these carved heads on a mountainside. And the, the, the theme is how great America is. So my concern is the worship is not of bending the knee to God Almighty, but the worship is of America as, as, as an entity. And, and if that's the case, then the, the attack from the left to destroy this is going to continue and it's going to continue to gain ground. But even though I have major reservations about how much he actually meant that, he did at least speak to the core spiritual nature of the conflict. And wouldn't it be refreshing to see any British politician being prepared to do that? To which the answer is yes, it would. But I fear we are not going to see a single UK politician do that because they have, haven't got the moral code or the guts. Uh, right, David, let's move on to defence issues. And the Times here, army to be cut by 20,000 if number 10 plan is approved. Uh, and uh, Royal Marine commandos may vanish as Cummings backs cyber warfare and shoots uh, forces chief down in flames. Where do you start with that? Well, I, I thought I, I started with, wow, are they really going after the army in that, that, to that extent? And then I started to read on in the article and it got stranger and stranger. Um, uh, they, they go on to say, uh, defence chiefs have drawn up plans to slash the army by a quarter and reduce the Royal Marines to a bit part as part of Boris Johnson's Defence and Security Review. Of course, Cummings isn't in charge of the defence chief, so you're thinking, this is odd. And it goes on, drastic cuts that would also close airfields and take helicopters out, uh, drawn up in response to Treasury demands that Whitehall departments map out 5%, uh, cuts of 5% or more as part of the government's comprehensive spending review. Again, Cummings wouldn't be in charge of that, so that's strange. And they're talking about army manpower falling. Um, and all the things like minesweepers, etc., that would face the axe, and hell, and then they go on to talk about air bases closing, um, Hercules transport planes um, being being uh, removed, and essentially the army being being neutered. And then it says threatened cuts to key capabilities uh, that do not then materialise are known as shroud waving in Whitehall, where they are a common feature of defence reviews. So they're even admitting in their own article eh, this is probably rubbish. And then they go on to say, but this time security sources, look, unnamed sources, security sources, would those be related to Sedwell, I wonder? Security sources say that Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's senior aide, is attracted to the proposal to slash the size of the army and pump the money into cyber warfare, space and artificial intelligence. I don't buy this. Attracted to. The story is somebody else who's unnamed says Cummings is attracted to this. this. This story starts to fall apart. It's based on nothing. And it gets even funnier. They said, so Cummings held a getting to know you exercise with service chiefs last month when sources say the personal chemistry was a disaster. Right? And this next bit I loved. General Sir Patrick Sanders, who is commander of strategic command, is in charge of all of the MOD's special forces and intelligence units, boasted about his work on cyber warfare. But a source said, 
but a source present said Cummings shot him down in flames, leaving Sanders humiliated. Number 10 disputes this. Well, if that happened, good, because shooting the hybrid warfare, um, uh, 77th Brigade nonsense down in flames when we should be having aircraft, artillery and ships is exactly what everybody should be doing. These people should, should be ashamed to show their faces in public. So it goes on. Whitehall officials say that the ousting last week, uh, the ousting last week of Mark Sedwell as cabinet secretary and national security advisor will allow Cummings to take charge of the defence review because David Frost, Johnson's chief Brexit negotiator, will not take over national security as national security advisor until the autumn. Well, this is a lie. That what that says is Sedwell's in charge of the national security review. Sedwell, Mark Sedwell, Mark Sedwell, who we're having to get rid of because he's been wanting to sell the country out to the EU. That Mark Sedwell, who had all power collected under his fingertips, is going to be conducting the review, not Cummings. So if it's Sedwell, we should be looking at Sedwell. I think I think this is a distraction. This is a, this article is chaff. Um, well, it, it got a little bit more interesting, uh, David, because uh, here is a Google search this morning. Uh, and the reason was because somebody sent me a link to an Express article on this. Uh, and it's the Express article was basically the same as the, as the Times article. I was citing the Times article. So here is uh, if we – the problem was that I couldn't find the Express article when I went looking for it. So I looked on Google uh, and, uh, well, lo and behold, uh, the article appears in the top stories. Uh, if you search for uh, Express.co.uk and British Army. Uh, and uh, so there it is. Uh, but if you click on that link, uh, what you get is a 404. Uh, the page is missing. Uh, and uh, so apparently, apparently within three or four hours, they had this article taken down again. It was then replaced with this article. Uh, British Army could be hit with devastating cuts to manpower under new government proposals. Uh, and what I find fascinating about this is that, of course, um, the the mayor, the Express um, is getting a lot of information from people within the defence industry. They've generally taken a, a more Brexit-type uh, stance on things, but they're getting their information from uh, uh, people within the, 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 the military. Uh, and, uh, sorry, that is the, I should say that that, that particular one that's uh, on screen at the moment is the Google Cache version of the, the article that was taken down. It's still available in Google Cache. This is the article they replaced it with, Leave Our Troops Alone, Fury at Plans to Cut British Army by 20,000. And what's interesting is that in this version of the article, there's no mention of Dominic Cummings at all. So I'm just fascinated by that, uh, why the Express felt the need to remove uh, the article. And I, I'm going to suggest that it's because some of the people that are, that are uh, briefing them have have uh, briefed slightly differently to what the Times is trying to push out, but you know I'm quite willing to accept that uh, uh, people may have different uh, different views on that. Uh, but uh, David, what what uh, what happens next with respect to uh, to the military and 77 Brigade and particularly veterans issues? Well, we we've been trying to do a little bit digging into this um, and. Uh, Strategic Defence Initiatives, David Ellis, has been doing some work on this, and he's dropped uh, an email to Rupert Burridge, uh, Lieutenant Colonel of the 77th Brigade, and asked him a very good question. 
And uh, there it is, dear Colonel Bur uh, Lieutenant Colonel Burridge. Further to the recent statements by General Sir Nick Carter concerning the deployment of 77th Brigade to shape discourse within the UK concerning important contemporary issues, please confirm whether 77th Brigade resources have been or are being deployed to interact with veterans or veterans groups. Now, why why has he asked that uh, that question? Well, of course, General Sinek Carter announced that the 77th Brigade was being employed um, to modify the discussion regarding COVID. So the, the question is, well, if, if we're employing the army to change civil communication within the country regarding a disease, are we employing those same army personnel to change discourse in the country about such things as defence and the treatment of our veterans? It seems a reasonable question. Now, we've not had an answer. Uh, David Ellis has not had any answer to this as yet. Um, so we encourage people to, to contact Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel uh, Burridge. Here is his details. Make sure it's polite. Make sure it's, there's nothing rude or offensive, but this is his email address and direct dial phone number. And uh, ask him this question. Is 77th Brigade being deployed looking and interacting with veterans and veterans groups? That's that's the question we want an answer to. OK. Uh, and we should get an answer to it because um, this is immensely dangerous territory, as we've covered before. Well, it's that that it should be simple yes or no. Uh, um, uh, yes, but it's yes or no. We need to know. Absolutely. Uh, 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 right. for time. Uh, we're okay. Well, uh, let's let's do one more. Well, if we're talking about uh, the state's ability to spy on the population, of course, the state spying comes in many forms, and uh, we've got to follow through. Here's an article from the Daily Mail, which is talking about people um, hurling abuse at football players. Now, I don't follow football in any shape or form, so. Um, what was interesting is this article was sent in because it was talking about the fact that um, a company has stepped forward to say it can help um, football clubs track racist trolls. And even though they might think they're anonymous online, it can help pull out their identities and then things can happen. So who's the organisation? Well, it's Signify, um, and here's part of their website with the threat matrix. But it says players, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, players and their families need support and protection to help evidence deflect and report abuse. Threat matrix offers this service, stripping anonymity from um, protagonists and ensuring that abusers don't go unpunished. So that's pretty heavy language, isn't it? For a private company, they're stepping in there to make sure that people are punished. Um, but of course, the definition of what is race, uh, what's hatred is pretty flexible and with lots of loopholes. Well, who's the company? Uh, this is their image. I thought this had got a slight sort of, I don't mean to be, um, well, whatever the word is, but something a little bit narcissistic about this. We're beautiful people. Look at us. Uh, here they are. And this is what they're into. So we've got everything from Trump gathering t talent, uh, the Limehouse Declaration. Uh, that's quite interesting because in that paragraph three, it talks about the organisation. We'll come on to that in a minute. Getting serious in 2019, the new normal 2020 and what's next. So these are some of the people quoted in the article. Jonathan Herschler, 
Um, he's got a background in in um, online data and that types of thing. Um, but I picked up at the end of his, um, um, not his Facebook, his um, online. Uh, uh, thank you, Mike. LinkedIn is uh, online image uh, that he's got this uh, particular bit at the end. It says Mega is a content hub for PICTET asset management designed and built entirely in-house. And if you read through this, the next bit, it talks about an open, clean reading environment for long form articles by leading thinkers like Vaclav Smile, Bill Gates, must read author. So I just found it fascinating that we go from a company which is supposedly tracking a um, football extremism and hatred. Uh, we're back on the subject to Mr. Gates. Uh, this is one of the other key people in the company, Jonathan Sabir. He's a, a writer. And if we have a look on his Twitter page, this was very interesting. Balancing mental health, economic and other needs to reopen versus a city where R is back endlessly flirting with their true love one requires modifying normal behavior. Many just seem unwilling and capable of that. And it's not the people running or staffing venues. So they're talking about changing behavior. It's gone from following people who are being abusive to changing behavior. And who's the organization that they're linked to? Well, let's have a look at that. Uh, here it is, theorganization.com. Adapt and innovate in uncertain times. So reliably develop organizational agility, continuous data-driven, human-centered organizational evolution, agile culture transformation. And if we follow it on through, uh, the whole <coughs> excuse me, the whole nature of work is changing. So this is a very, very deep organization, and it ends at the bottom here, saying the organization is an exploration and expression of our ideas and work, a platform for human development. Really? So we've gone from tracking supposed abuse in uh, football to the fact that the whole of uh, society is going to change, but these people are going to develop us as humans. And I find that very interesting. And we need to ask a question, really. So Signify says it's an ethical company. Well, we'll take that at face value. It's working with the organization. But what are they actually doing? Where is this data going? Because the data that they're collecting is being provided to the state prosecutor to make sure people are, quote, punished. And for that, they're earning £5,000 per month per club that takes up the offer. I find this very sinister. Yeah. David, any thoughts? Oh, well, it's nice money if you can get it. So how many football clubs are there in the UK? Um, and they all want to say, oh, we're doing something with racism. We're doing something about racism. And they'll just point to this. Well, we're giving some money to this lot. And uh, you can see how it would play well at the corporate level. And what will it produce? Will it produce better behaviour? Behavior? Will it produce any more justice, either for the players who are getting abused or for the fans in the terracing? I'm not sure that it will. Indeed. Yeah. Well, more work to be done, but uh, we've seen the, the collection of data across the board as a result of COVID. Now it's getting more and more detailed and the government is hoovering it up. Absolutely. Uh, we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us as always. And I'll end by just saying once again, thank you very much to everybody who's 
donated to the Ian Crane fundraiser. Uh, apologies, having a few croaks today. Um, that has gone extremely well, but I do wish to emphasize that Ian will need more than that £10,000. The £10,000 is just enough to get him started on forms of alternative treatment. So we look to ongoing support and also for promulgating that fundraiser as widely as possible. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time on Wednesday. Bye-bye.